Today's scripture and sermon are derived from Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 and 2. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. I wonder how, as we're still in the early days of a new year in 2023, how God is, might be calling you to exercise self-abandoning faith. Let me just read this passage again. Um, you know what? Before I do that, I do, I just, you know, when your mind kind of splits, I want to make mention of why I'm up here. Uh, usually, and it was the plan that Albert, our pastor, would be preaching this morning. And uh, on either New Year's Eve or New Year's Day, Albert's father died suddenly while on vacation in Korea. He had a heart attack, and uh, Albert is there in Korea. Uh, he arrived late one evening, and then the next day he had to begin to lead services that extended over three days, all in Korean, of course, for his father and uh, has been working together with his sister and mother uh, on all of the administrative things that are involved with uh, someone's passing. So maybe even before I step into this, why don't we pray for Albert, uh, for Linda, Christopher, and Emma uh, during this time. Lord, thank you that we are gathered here uh, as members of a body, that we by your grace, belong to not only you, but to each other. And so, Lord, as one grieves, we all grieve. And uh, we just acknowledge, Lord, the unexpected and painful loss that Albert and his mother and sister in particular, together with Linda and uh, Christopher and Emma, are going through right now. And we commend all those who are grieving to you, Lord, to your tender care, to your comfort. May they know the truth that even though they walk through the valley of the shadow of death, there is nothing to fear because you are with them. Lord, may they be comforted by your promise that he who believes in you, even though he dies, yet shall he live. And uh, Lord, we pray for the details of these coming days, the administration work that still needs to be completed as Albert's asked us to pray that uh, things would go well there uh, to prevent the added challenge of trying to um, settle in a state uh, at distance from here in Canada. So Lord, we just commit this family to you in Jesus' name, amen. So now let me ask you again, at the beginning of a new year, as we anticipate 2023, how is God calling you to exercise self-abandoning faith. Genesis chapter 22 is not an easy uh, passage. The book of Genesis, if you go to it as an adult expecting to find a hard cover children's picture book that's full of nothing but Edens and rainbows and ladders to heaven, you will be surprised and maybe disappointed to discover that this is a book that is full of difficulty, 
darkness, sin, and struggle. And perhaps there is no passage more arresting than Genesis chapter 22. Just reading again what Philip has already read for us. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. This raises questions for any reader. This is a striking instruction from God. It must have raised questions for Abraham. What in the world is going on when the God of creation instructs his chosen servant, Abraham, to sacrifice his promised son? Maybe the way to best get into this story is perhaps you've seen uh, television shows or movies that start with a striking moment like this one, and then the words come across the screen. Two, day, two weeks earlier or 24 hours earlier. Well, here we have to say more than 35 years earlier. And we return to Genesis chapter 12, which comes as a, as a sort of moment of light, a moment of brightness in what has been a story from Genesis chapter 3 on to Genesis chapter 11 of sin and distance and struggle and strife between men and between God and men. And in Genesis chapter 12, we read this. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is a bright and glorious promise from God to an earlier, a, sort of an unknown character who's only just stepped onto the stage of scripture, Abram. Uh, it's a promise that's full of kind of everything that men have striven for over the decades and epochs of history. There's power here. God says, I will make you a great nation. There is no leader of a great nation who is not powerful. There's significance here. God says, I will give you, I will make your name great. There's influence here. I will bless the nations through you. And there's protection here. God says, those who bless you, I will bless. And he who curses you or he who dishonors you, I will curse. Power, significance, influence, protection, and safety. Think about how much of human activity, how many wars have been fought to, strike, to seek these things. And in Genesis chapter 12, God promises them all as a gift to Abram. 
but God doesn't stop there. In Genesis 13, he, on one occasion, as Abraham is surveying the land that God has identified as the gift he is giving to Abraham, the land of Canaan, and it was probably a dusty place, a, a sandy place, God says, I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth. You are, it's almost incalculable how many people are going to be the children of Abraham. On another occasion, when Abraham is really doubting God's promise in Genesis 15, he takes, God takes Abraham out in the middle of the night and he says, look up at the stars if you can count them. I will make your offspring like the stars. On that same occasion, he says, your very own son will be the first of this promise. Don't worry, Abraham. I know you're old. Abraham was 75 years old when he received this promise from God in Genesis 12. I know you're old. I don't, I know you're childless, but your own son, your biological son will be the first fruit of this promise. In Genesis 15, God also tells Abraham that he will die peacefully at an old age. So he confirms his protection. He has Abraham do a strange ritual with animals that we don't completely understand. It's a little bit opaque to us, but it's clear that God is saying that this covenant is unilateral, that God is promising by his own name and by his own authority that these things will be accomplished as in Genesis 15, this covenant ritual is uh, undertaken. In Genesis 17, after the birth of Ishmael, and we'll get into that story a little bit. Now, Abraham already has one son by Sarah's handmaiden, Hagar. And after that, God says, I want to rename you. You're not just going to be Abram, the exalted father. You're going to be Abraham, the father of multitudes. He says, nations will come from you. Kings will come from you. And he specifies in Genesis 17 that Sarah who by this time is pro approaching 90 years old, Sarah will be the mother of this child who will be your own son. A chapter later in Genesis 18, the Lord visits Abram and he's Abraham and he tells him the specific timing that in a year's time, Sarah will give birth to a child. These promises are rich. These promises are vibrant. These promises change the whole course of the book of Genesis around this one man. That God is going to do amazing things for Abraham. That God is going to do wonderful things in him and through him to bless the world. And famously in Genesis 15 verse 6, we're told that Abraham believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. So God has made a great promise and God has revealed a miraculous plan and Abraham has trusted God and it's been credited to him as righteousness. So why do we arrive then at Genesis chapter 22? Why is it necessary? Why, why would God call Abraham in this terrifying way to take his only son, his beloved son, Isaac, whom he loves, and to offer him as a burnt offering in Moriah. Well, we're not sure. The Bible is pretty quiet, actually, 
on the why of this. We're left to infer. We're left to try to understand this indirectly and, and think about it. So I want to suggest that one way we can get to an answer about why Genesis chapter 22 is happening involves some curious inclusions in the story of Abraham in between God's promise to him in Genesis 12 and this arresting moment in Genesis 22. There are curious inclusions throughout scripture. Moses murdering the Egyptian is one such curious inclusion. David's sin with Bathsheba and his conspiracy to kill her husband Uriah is another such curious inclusion. Peter denying even knowing Jesus is a curious inclusion in scripture. Paul and Barnabas, great leaders in the church of Antioch, missionaries, planting churches all over the New Testament's geographical region, having a sharp disagreement and being estranged for, from one another for years. That's a curious inclusion. And Abraham's story as well has them. There are three. Right after God calls Abraham and makes these great promises that involve power and influence and uh, significance and blessing and protection, there is a sister-wife ruse that Abram and Sarai perpetrate on Pharaoh, the king, Pharaoh of Egypt, the king of Egypt. In Genesis 16, there is what I'm going to call the Hagar scheme. That's a curious inclusion. We'll talk more about it in just a minute. Genesis 20, there is another sister-wife ruse perpetrated on Abimelech, who is the king of Gerar. Now, when we say sister-wife, I'm not thinking about Utah. What happens here is that Abram asks Sarah, he actually kind of compels her, she agrees that as they travel, and they're vulnerable, traveling as no nomadic people in, in and out of lands where other people have power and authority, and he says to Sarah, if anyone asks us, tell them you're my sister. We're told in scripture that Sarah stood out for her beauty, and in Abraham's mind, he thought to himself, now, if one of these foreign kings or men of power in one of these foreign lands wants to take Sarah as a wife, and they know that I'm her husband, they'll kill me. So what we should do is that Sarah will tell people that we are brother and sister, and that way they can take Sarah as a wife and won't feel necessary to kill me, her husband. We're told in Genesis 20 that this is sort of a half-truth. Sarah is, in fact, the daughter of Abraham's father, although they had different mothers. So that's the sister-wife, Ruth. And Abraham has Sarah do this twice. And in both occasions, uh, you know, we're, we see that Abraham isn't wrong. Pharaoh does, in fact, take Sarah into his household. Abimelech does, in fact, take Sarah into his household. So Abraham wasn't wrong about the threat. She was recognized as beautiful, and men of power did take her for the king of the land. 
But we also see that in each of these cases, there are negative consequences because of this scheme that Abraham and Sarah have perpetrated together. First of all, and most importantly, I think, Sarah is put at great risk. She's identified as a single unmarried woman and is brought into the home of a powerful man. She's added to the harem of wives, likely, and concubines that these kings had. She's made sexually vulnerable in both of these situations. In the Hagar plot, what happens is this. It's about 10 years, 11 years since Genesis 12, when God made the promise that Abraham would become a great nation, and no child has been born. And Sarah initiates that since they're unable to have children, Abraham should take Hagar, her servant, and have a child by Hagar. In that way, sort of, she's my property. Hagar belongs to me. If she becomes pregnant, it's almost like my daughter, or my, so it would be almost like my son. So why don't you take Hagar? And Abraham agrees to this. And as soon as Hagar becomes pregnant, she despises Sarah. It becomes clear that the fertility issue between Abraham and Sarah is that Sarah is unable to have children. And Hagar begins to mock her. And Sarah says, get rid of this woman. I don't want her around. I, won't, I don't want a daily reminder as her pregnancy proceeds of just what's going on here. And so Hagar is expelled. And uh, God actually meets with her. The angel of the Lord comes and meets with her and tells her to go back and to submit to Sarah. And in that way, the pregnancy can proceed. And Ishmael, her son is born, Abraham's firstborn. And actually, God includes covenants and blessings for Ishmael in the midst of that story. The structure of Abraham's story I wanna, is, is interesting. In Genesis 12, this is still about these curious inclusions. In Genesis 12, God calls Abraham. And all those blessings that we mentioned are, are listed. And then many chapters later in Genesis 21, Isaac is born. And in between those two events, there are nine significant stories that occur. And they're structured interestingly. The first significant story that happens after Genesis 12, when God promises that he will bless Abraham, is the sister wife ruse with Pharaoh. It's a story of a curious inclusion. It's a story of a failure of faith. God or Abraham doesn't trust God's protection, and he schemes instead to protect himself by having his wife lie. Then there are three stories, good stories, stories of Abraham and Lot separating, and Abraham is generous to Lot, gives Lot the choice of land, his nephew, what land he chooses, and, and Lot goes to the land that is more uh, fertile and ends up close to some famous cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham rescues Lot in Genesis 14. That's the second significant and good story that happens after the Pharaoh incident where Sarah lies and says that she is Abraham's sister rather than his wife. And then Genesis 15, which I've already mentioned, that's the starry night scene. Look at the stars, count them if you can. And God's unilateral covenant with Abraham saying, I am going to accomplish these things. It's dependent on me and my character. So. A bad story in Egypt, 
three good stories. And then Genesis 16, a bad story. Sarah comes to Abraham and says, we're not having children. It's been about 10 years. Take my servant Hagar, have a child by her. Interestingly, another woman, just as Sarah was put in jeopardy in Egypt, now another woman is abused. Hagar, property of Sarah, is made to become uh, a wife to Abraham, whether she wants to or not. And not only is she, does she become pregnant by Abraham, but she's expelled from the family and God has to intervene to bring her back. Then three good stories. The covenant of circumcision in Genesis 17. This is where God says to him, you're not just going to be called Abram, great father. You're going to be called Abraham, father of, na of nations and kings. And there's this covenant given that any, any male within the, this covenant community needs to be circumcised. And Abraham's obedient to that, even though by this time he's nearly 100 years old. Then there's Genesis 18, Abraham interceding for Sodom. This is the kind of curious passage where three visitors come. One of them's the Lord. There's a couple of other angels in the midst there. And Abraham and the Lord actually talk about Sodom. And, and the Lord decides that he's going to tell Abraham about, because of Sodom's wickedness, I'm going to destroy this city. And Abraham says, well, what if there's 50 righteous people in that city, Lord? And the Lord says, well, for 50, I'd be willing to to stay my hand. He says, well, let me not press my luck here. What about 45? For the sake of just five, for a difference of just five people, would you really destroy this city? Don't do that, Lord. Don't let anyone say that you're not just. The Lord says, okay, for 45. What about 40, Lord? What about 30? What about 20? Don't let me offend you, Lord. What about 10? And the Lord says, yeah, if there's 10 righteous people in that city, I won't judge it. And the angels, the two had, who had been with the Lord when they first met with Jesus arrived, or sorry, when they first met with Abraham. We talk about Jesus, as Philip noted so much in church. Today we're talking about Abraham. These two angels arrive in Sodom. They don't have a good experience there. They rescue Lot, his wife, and daughters from the city, and God brings judgment on Sodom. Those are three more good stories. And then Genesis 20, right before the birth of Isaac in Genesis 21, 25 years after God first called him, after all the confirmations of God's protection, after the starry night, after the dust of the earth promises after all the ways that God has shown himself faithful to Abraham in Genesis 20, right before Isaac is born again, they seek to deceive a king by having Sarah tell Abimelech that she's Abraham's sister instead of his wife. And you sort of get this feeling in Genesis 20 as a reader, had they learned nothing? Why are they still returning to these failed and faithless plots of self-protection. And then in Genesis 21, fulfillment. So it seems to me that the author of Genesis has very carefully constructed the story of Abraham to start with the promise in Genesis 12, and then to have these curious inclusions very 
organized and structured into the story. It starts with a story of failure of faith with a with Pharaoh, and before the birth of Isaac, it ends with a story of failure of faith with Abimelech. And right in the center of the nine stories that go between God's promise and the fulfillment of that promise, we have Hagar, the story of another failure of faith. So I meant, I think the reader is meant to see these stories. They're meant to stand out. They're curious inclusions. Why are they here? Well, let me say a few things. We can sympathize, first of all, with Abraham's humanity in all of these curious inclusions. I've already noted, he's not wrong that Sarah is likely to be taken, noted for her beauty, and given to the king, whether it's Pharaoh or Abimelech. That happens. So Abraham had reasons to be afraid. It's nearly 10 years after God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 before Sarah finally says, why don't we try something here? Why don't we kind of move this process along? You, have, you could have Hagar and, and maybe she will give you a son. So these are very human characters, Sarah and Abraham both. They're reacting the way that normal people would. They're afraid, they're impatient, they're confused. So that's one thing. I think we also have to say, though, that these stories go from bad to worse. I mean, it's one thing for Abraham, newly called by God, stepping out in faith, going into the land of Egypt, afraid for his life to tell his wife, Sarah, deceive them, tell them that you're my sister so that I won't be killed as your husband. But it's another thing. All those years later, 25 years after God first promised all that faithfulness to do it again with Abimelech, it seems these stories are going from bad to worse. And perhaps the one that's centered in the story in Genesis 16 is the worst of them all. Hagar, powerless, a slave to begin with, is used in this way to produce an heir for Abraham. But also we can say that there is a pattern to all three of these stories. I've already noted one part of the pattern is that a woman is made vulnerable or abused in each one of these curious inclusions. That's interesting. I'll say more about that in a minute. But the structure of these curious inclusions is almost formulaic. Abraham starts afraid. How's he afraid? One type of fear is God might not come through. God has promised to those who bless you, I will bless. He who curses you or dishonors you, I will curse. God has promised protection. And yet, Abraham has this thought, what if God doesn't come through? I mean, Pharaoh's really powerful. I mean, these Egyptians are, they're, they're godless people. We can't be sure of what might happen to me in here. And, and God's made great promises to me. I'm supposed to become a great nation. I have to protect myself. I have an idea. So he has a fear. And the first kind of fear that he has, both with Pharaoh and Abimelech, is God might not come through. He has another kind of fear in Genesis 16, which is God hasn't come through. God isn't coming through. We started this morning by me asking you, 
How is God asking you to exercise self-abandoning faith in 2023? And these fears might help you to identify what it is that you want to hold in your mind if you haven't come up with something already. Because these are fears that are common to us as well. What if God doesn't come through? Or it doesn't look like God is coming through. And these are the places where God is asking us, inviting us, calling us to exercise self-abandoning faith. You can find those places in your life because they're very, they're butted up right against fear. What if God doesn't come through though? Doesn't look like God is coming through though. These are, this, these are the places where we're tempted to begin to protect ourselves. And this is what the, the next part of the pattern is in all of these curious inclusions is that a scheme is schemed. Tell them you're my sister. Maybe Hagar can help us out here. So that's the second feature of all of these inclusions. First fear, then a scheme. And the third feature of all of these are could, you know, we could put a fourth one in. The fourth one is things don't go perfectly well. There's brokenness and hurt and pain. But the third feature I want to emphasize is that God is faithful and generous in each of these stories. In the first one, her name is Sarai. Sarai is protected in Pharaoh's household. Who, how? By God who intervenes to make sure that she is not harmed, even though she's been identified as a single woman and taken into Pharaoh's home. And what's more, Abraham is blessed. Pharaoh gives him, you know, cows and sheep and camels and goats. And, and actually, uh, Abraham leaves Egypt richer than when he came there, which is interesting because it's not the only time that that happens to God's people. God blesses Abraham in that story. And then in Genesis 16, he, God intervenes and shows that he is faithful and generous to Hagar. She, she calls him the God who sees me. Because even though she's being used like property, even though she's being abused in a plan that is not going to work and is not God's best plan, not what God wants Sarah and Abraham to do, God sees her. God meets with her. God speaks to her and tells her, it's okay. I'm going to bless your son. Go back and submit to, your, your, to Sarah. And, and let this child, Ishmael, be born a son of Abraham because I'm going to bless him. And then in the final story, he protects Sarah again. Now her name is Sarah and he protects her in Abimelech's house. And again, Abraham is blessed. It's sort of interesting. In the first story, Pharaoh gives uh, Abraham all these things because he thinks that Abraham is Sarai's brother. And he's trying to say, wow, you know, cute sister. Here's all this stuff. It's almost like paying a dowry for her. And then when it, their ruse is discovered, Pharaoh doesn't take that stuff back. And so they leave with all those riches. In the case of Abimelech, God reveals to Abimelech who Sarah is, the ruse is uncovered, and even after that, Abimelech blesses them. So God is 
faithful, excuse me, and generous. Fear, what if God doesn't come through? Doesn't look like God is coming through. A scheme, brokenness, and then God is faithful and generous. So looking at these curious inclusions in the story of Abraham and Sarah and all the aftermath of what follows from the glorious promise of Genesis 12 now finally leads us back full circle to the moment that we started with, which is in Genesis chapter 22. Isaac has been born. Everything has been fulfilled. All is well. All is good. The promise of Genesis 12 is proceeding and advancing and God's blessing is being realized. And after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. This is every parent's worst nightmare. Not just the death of a child. Abraham is being told to be the agent of the death of his child. The Bible says, after these things, God tested Abraham. This is a test. We're told. And that's kind of helpful to us as readers. If we haven't gotten farther in the story, at least we know this is a test. Something is going on. God has a plan. God has a purpose. Just very quickly, some comments distinguishing tests from temptations. A test is an opportunity. A temptation is a trap. A test reveals what is true. A temptation always distorts what's true. Tests result in people growing to have a stronger heart for God, a greater love for him. Temptations lead people to have a weaker heart for God and to trust him less. This is a test. It's an opportunity. It's going to be a revelation of what's true. And it's going to produce a stronger heart in Abram for God. But it is a fearful, terrifying, awesome, just scandalizing test. I don't think that can be under or overstated, I should say. But then remember the second part of the curious inclusions, this is also a moment of fear, but in this case, no scheme is scheme. We read in verse three of Genesis 22, so Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood and the, for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood for the, of the burnt offering uh, and laid it on his son Isaac. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. 
So they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? So Abraham schemes no scheme. Verse 3 of Genesis 22 says, so Abraham rose early in the morning. He didn't even waste time. He just did what God was telling him to do. This is self-abandoning faith that Abraham is showing here. Even though he's not scheming in his head, even though he's not coming up with some plot or plan to get himself off the hook of this fear, even though he's exercising self-abandoning faith, his mind is active. He's thinking things. And in uh, Hebrews chapter 11, scripture reveals to us what's going on in Abraham's mind. Did you notice that he says to his two servants, my boy and I will go and worship God and we'll come back to you. In Hebrews, the author picks up that and says, by faith, let me get my verse right here, 17 of Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered, now this is what was going on in Abraham's head, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. You see what happened? Abraham didn't scheme any schemes. He didn't come up with any plan to get him off the hook of this fear. He just obeyed. He exercised self-abandoning faith. But as he's doing it, as they're walking and the, and the, the, the journey continues and he's walking with his son Isaac, he's thinking. And he's beginning to imagine a God who is greater than any God he could even have imagined or hoped for or dared believe in. A God who could raise the dead. And Abraham, all back here in Genesis chapter 22, is already recognizing things about God that even the Sadducees of Jesus' day didn't believe. And he's right. God can bring dead things, dead people back to life that's the god that we believe in and so he's not scheming but he is thinking and his faith is actually expanding and growing and then the third feature of the story mirrors the curious inclusions because god is faithful and he's generous let's look here uh get back into genesis 22 it says, Isaac speaking, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. I'm not sure what's going on there. Is he just trying to keep Isaac calm? Or is even that a statement of Abraham's stretch a belief maybe there's going to be a substitute maybe god's going to provide his own lamb so they went both of them together verse 9 when they came to the place of which god had told him abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound isaac his son can you imagine 
and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Talk about self-abandoning faith. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abram, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now, I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket of, by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Abraham's fearful, but this time he schemes no scheme. He exercises self-abandoning faith. His vision of God grows. He begins to imagine a God who can raise the dead. He begins to imagine with God's help that God will provide the lamb for the sacrifice. And then God is faithful and generous. Abraham's problem in Genesis is that he believes, but he needs help with his unbelief. Only by God's grace could Abraham, the father of all who believe, grow to have the self-abandoning faith that we find in Genesis 22. So what about us? What about the question we started with? Where do you sense God calling you to exercise self-abandoning faith in 2023? Maybe you're still struggling with that question. Sunday mornings are not always the best time to try and figure out what's lacking, you know, and, and where we're struggling in life. Because it's a, it's a day where we're focused on celebrating God and being reminded of his promises. So maybe you're sort of sitting here in the comfort of Trinity Grace, thinking, I don't know. I don't think I'm really struggling with self-abandoning faith. I don't know where I'm fearful that God might not show up. I don't know where I'm fearful that God hasn't shown up. Maybe, maybe you've figured that out already for yourself this morning. But if you haven't, just let me just suggest that our mixed motives, our selfishness, our lack of faith can be exposed by where we're anxious, can be exposed by what discourages us, can be exposed by the things that make us bitter, places where we're apathetic, the circumstances in our life over which we have resentment. Now, these negative or painful emotions can be caused by many things. Some of them are actually, we're told not to be bitter, for example, or resentful. Apathy is never a good thing. But you could be anxious or discouraged for a variety of reasons, so I'm not condemning anxiety per se. 
I think we need to handle our anxieties properly, but you might be anxious today for other reasons. You might be discouraged today for other reasons. But sometimes anxiety and discouragement and bitterness and apathy and resentment help us see the places where we're not trusting God. We're not exercising self-abandoning faith. We're in this tussle between our strategies to try to get what we think we need and just trusting God. So maybe you have it now. Maybe you know how it is that God is asking you to exercise self-abandoning faith in 2023. Let me just commend this to you. In Genesis 22, it is terrifying how God instructs Abraham and how Abraham responds. It wouldn't be something that we would even believe if it weren't revealed to us in Scripture. It's, it's, a, it's an arresting and terrifying and scandalous incident, incident for sure, but it ends so well and so gloriously as we're about to see. But as we are called into self-abandoning faith, it, it's not going to look like this. This was a unique circumstance that was very particular and very specific. But God will, will call his people into self-abandoning faith. He'll do it in the way we handle our finances, in the way we deal with relationships, in the way that we step up in places where we might feel powerless to just speak a word of testimony to glorify Jesus. He might do it as we trust God in, a, in an illness or we trust him with some area of brokenness that grieves us in our lives. It would be a beautiful thing. This is how I'm saying I want to commend it to you. It would be a beautiful thing if more and more and more of us at Trinity Grace exercise self-abandoning faith. This is the kind of faith that not only we need for each other, but it's the kind of faith that Leeside needs. Leeside needs a church at 826 Eglinton that exercises self-abandoning faith. Thorncliffe needs a church here that exercises self-abandoning faith. Canada needs churches all across the country exercising self-abandoning faith. The world needs the church in all of her diversity and languages and cultures in all the places and socioeconomic circumstances where she is planted, in places of freedom, in places of threat, to exercise self-abandoning faith. And probably most of us now know at least one way that God is calling us individually to participate in that great thing that the world needs the church to do. So how could we ever do that? In Genesis 22, it just sort of seems to happen. Abraham goes from this guy who in Genesis 20 is conspiring with his wife, Sarah, to deceive Abimelech. And then after the birth of Isaac, in chapter 21, an intervening many years, likely, as the picture depicts, Isaac was not a baby. He was probably a young teenager by this stage or even older. Abraham just gets up early the next morning and does what God tells him to do. Like, what happened? How does that happen? And how can it happen for us that we would be people equipped 
to exercise self-abandoning faith? Well, let me suggest one, one way. We don't have to guess about God's motives. Abraham was sort of figuring out the story in real time, right? We don't have to do that. We know the story. We know the whole story already. So we don't have to guess at what God is up to. And what God is up to is good beyond our imagination. And it is secure, not by our actions, but by God's own character. He will accomplish through his son, Jesus, all that he has promised to accomplish. Our story, your story, if you have faith in Christ, ends perfectly, gloriously, abundantly, and eternally well. So that's one reason to exercise self-abandoning faith. We don't need to ask how the story ends. Whether we feel that we're under threat or whether we feel that God's plan is falling apart, we can look to scripture and be assured that those things are never true. We are never under threat. God has given Jesus a name that is above every name, every rule, every power, every dominion, every authority is subject to the name of our risen Lord Jesus Christ. And God has given him as head to the church. We are never under threat. And we don't need to worry that God will never come through. Why? It was never God's intention for Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. But God took his son, his only son, Jesus, and sacrificed him for us on a mountain of his own choosing. You know, Moriah, we're told in Second Chronicles, Moriah, the Mount Moriah is the place where Solomon built the temple. And for generations, God's people sacrificed bulls and sheep and rams and birds there, shedding the blood of animals as an atonement for their sin. But Hebrews tells us the blood of animals could never take away sin. And so when Jesus came, he said, burnt offerings and sacrifices you have not desired, but here am I. I'm the one that this all points to. I'm the one that this has been waiting for. And the son of God, the beloved only son of God was sacrificed. Not because Peter denied him, not because Judas betrayed him, not because the Sadducees and Pharisees and Sanhedrin conspired against him, not because Pilate was cowardly and washed his hands of him. He died because it was God's plan that he would die. And Jesus said, I lay my life down. No one takes it from me. I lay it down so I can take it back up again. And so when we think of the glory of God's plan, the wonder of God's sacrifice for us, the certainty of God's promises, secure in the blood of his own son, 
our Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe, maybe as we look there, God's spirit stirs in us and we begin to step into more self-abandoning faith. I think this is some of what uh, Paul had in mind and this is how I'll close. When he writes in Romans 8, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famineness, nakedness, danger, sword, as it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's just pray for a moment. Lord, some of us here this morning have thought about a specific thing that you've brought to our mind where you are calling us to exercise self-abandoning faith. So we look to your son, Jesus, who looked to the cross and despised its shame. Whose reward was becoming Lord and King and Savior of your church. And we say, keep our minds focused on him. May we remember that your plan for us is a plan to bless us to adopt us, to give us the right to be called children of God in Christ. May we remember that even though we die, yet shall we live. Teach us not to be afraid of those who will harm the body, but to look to you instead. Grow self-abandoning faith in our hearts, we pray. For Jesus' sake, Amen.